My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand George W. Bush through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the special patient, uh, George W. Bush? Hi, Dario. Uh, well, over the past two weeks, we have analyzed both uh, Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington, two intellectuals who influenced U.S. foreign policymaking, and George W. Bush, being the 43rd president of the United States, was the one who actually implemented a lot of that policies and was responsible for a lot of the destruction that the Western bubble has caused over the past 25 years. Therefore, to go from theory to practice seems to be a good step here. And what are the facts? George Walker Bush was born in 1946 in the United States of America. Bush served as president for the Republican Party from 2001 until 2009, succeeding Bill Clinton and preceding Barack Obama. During his presidency, George W. Bush faced significant challenges, including the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, which led to the initiation of the war on terror. His administration also enacted policies such as the Patriot Act, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the invasion of Afghanistan. He also likes to paint cats. What is the bubble? So before we talk about the Western bubble perspective on this, I think it is important that we first talk about the personal bubble of uh, George W. Bush, uh, starting with his father, who was president previously. And we talked about both Bushes um, at length uh, during, the, during the episode in Iraq. But why was his father so important um, in the shaping of George W. Bush? Well, I don't really want to go into a Freudian analysis here, because this is not so much about the childhood of George W. Bush as being the son of a president and all that. Um, this is very much about the actual policy between the two presidents and between father and son. George H. Bush, the 41st president, started a war with Iraq to defend Kuwait, and he decided never to overthrow Saddam Hussein for very legitimate reasons. George H. Bush, father Bush, was someone who, much better than his son, understood international relations and foreign policy impact. And... George W. Bush, his son, when he became president eight years later, always had a feeling that his father somehow had made a mistake there. And he got uh, inspired by the neoconservatives around him who were very upset about his father's decisions never to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So his father had defeated the Iraqi army but let Saddam Hussein stay in power. George W. Bush was told by his advisors in 2002-2003 that his father had horribly failed. And in that sense, there is this very clear connection where the son tried to remedy, tried to solve the problems that he perceived to be caused by his father. Now, in reality, um, the problems that were uh, there had nothing to do with the decision of overthrowing Saddam Hussein uh, or not overthrowing Saddam Hussein. However, uh, this relationship of father and son and the son trying to go beyond his father's uh, actions is a very important driver in understanding George W. Bush's foreign policy. 
Mm. Again, to the listeners, in case this interests you a lot, I can definitely recommend our episodes that we wholly uh, or fully dedicated to to the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, the next part that is important when it comes to George W. Bush's uh, Vita is Arbusto Energy, is the oil and gas exploration company that he started in 1977. Why is this important? Is it because all United States presidents always just want to have all the oil and make a lot of money, like Dick Cheney, um, or what's the what's the importance here? It, it's certainly fair to point out that um, oil and money and politics in the United States go very much hand in hand, and certainly foreign policy has often been very much influenced by uh, the oil sector, obviously. What I think is more interesting here is that George W. Bush comes from a very specific background. He comes from a background where he's surrounded by oil money. He's surrounded by people in sort of U.S. upper class uh, environments, right? I mean, upper class in the sense of economic upper class, in the sense of political impact. As we said, his father had been a president. He worked in the oil sector. All his mates were from the oil sector. He uh, never had to worry about his own personal finances. Um he is a typical elitist president, someone who was spoon-fed this idea that the United States is great because we are great, because we've got a lot of money and we are doing well. Um, and um, there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with our U.S. success. And that gives a very specific background, just like, for example, if you look at his um, successor, Barack Obama, the fact that Barack Obama was African-American also had a significant impact on his presidency and his way of looking at things. So uh, George W. Bush's background within oil, with his uh, elitist surroundings, had a significant impact on the way that he non-critically analyzed U.S. relations with the world and the U.S. status in global affairs. And the last thing that... I think it's important to highlight is his, well, I mean, so he, he was addicted to alcohol and had problems with alcohol, and he managed to overcome this through religion, as he claimed. And exactly, again, that reaffirmed for him at a personal level, the Western bubble. So he credited Jesus Christ with his success in overcoming alcohol and his faith became much more important to him later on in life than early on in life. And the result of that is once again a individual, a man, who is continuously reaffirmed in his belief that there's something superior about the Judeo-Christian Western values that the United States defends. And this has significant impact on the way he reacts as a president to 9-11 and other um, such events. So all of this can be summarized by stating that George W. Bush is not necessarily an intellectual that he became president because he wanted to follow his father in his footsteps, um, but rather as a manager than a leader. Something that we've also discussed in past episodes is that he would have someone who's not necessarily very intellectual and really just wants to be president and manage the country, but is, doesn't necessarily have a vision of where to, where to bring the country. And this is one of those typical examples that someone gets born and, and, and you could imagine already at the age of eight or nine people saying, oh, you might become president one day because of your surroundings and because of your contacts and your network and your parents. 
but not because he has great ideas or not because he has actually a goal for being president. Being president is sort of a natural path for this elitist crowd, right? Where, yeah, you, you either become CEO of a large oil company or you become president of the United States or something like that. But it has very little to do with in-depth understanding. Now, that doesn't take value away from George W. Bush as a person, but it does have an impact on him as a president. Because if you don't have an intellectual vision, a framework to guide your policies, what's going to happen is that you're going to be very prone to outside voices because you really have no clue about the world. You don't care about the world. You're just managing uh, your advisors here and there and you're not correcting your advisors when they're wrong. Outside voices like, for example, Fukuyama and Huntington, whom we discussed uh, in the last two episodes, who provided the West and really the Bush administration with the intellectual cover or the philosophical cover for the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan by proclaiming that either the West had won and everyone should strive towards the Western model, the end of history of Fukuyama, or the clash of civilizations, the a little bit less intellectual work by Huntington, where he said that the next wars are going to be about religion and well, civilization differences rather than ideology. Exactly. And as we mentioned during the Fukuyama episode, uh, Fukuyama was surrounded by neoconservatives. Those neoconservatives had important positions within the George W. Bush White House, and they would go down that route that you just explained. And then on top of that, they would throw some daddy issues in there. They would say, uh, hey, remember your father? He really messed up 10 years ago. Now you can make it right. Well, that's a very powerful mix, right? First of all, a group that confirms your Western bubble identity, that confirms everything you always felt about Christianity and about the superiority of the system in which you grew up in. And then on top of that, they say, you know what, you can you can clean the slate of your father's dodgy decisions when it came to this evil dictator who is very much not like us and who is about to kill us. And all of this is paired with the enormous shock of 9-11 to the United States. The first time since Pearl Harbor that the United States was attacked more or less directly and more importantly at a scope like this with 3,000 people dying of, of, of that attack immediately and then all the after effects. Just the psychological toll this attack took on the United States was immense. And the first time since 1812 that mainland USA had been attacked because Pearl Harbor in the Pacific, you know, that didn't have this, it, it, it had a huge impact on the United States, but not in the way that you see when the planes hit the Twin Towers, which was the heartland of what the United States believes itself to be, Manhattan. You know, you can't you can't hit a more symbolic place than that. And some of our listeners might be too young to remember, but 9-11 created an enormous, enormous trauma on American society. And that cannot be underestimated. It was truly a moment, not just of grief about the 3,000 people, but also somehow all of a sudden a realization by the United States that this happy 21st century, where the United States was going to lead the world into a Western utopia, was maybe not going to be as pleasant as had been expected. And so all of a sudden, America woke up to a world in that was scary to them, where they didn't control dynamics. And that had very, very uh, significant impact on not just 
the American people, but also George W. Bush himself. All of a sudden, he was partially traumatized and partially emboldened by having this almost religious um, task in front of him to protect everything that was right and proper about Western identity. And how does all of this, or all of these actions by George W. Bush then add to the Western bubble? Because so right now we are analyzing him as a part of the Western bubble and almost as a victim of the Western bubble. But is he adding to it in any sense? Well, he's, he's adding to it by being a conduit for voices that otherwise might not have been heard, right? So by essentially not just echoing, but amplifying the voice of the neoconservatives by feeling very intuitively comfortable with those voices, he actually starts a discourse in his speeches that is very much in line with this belief that the West had this Huntingtonian um, mission to defend itself against the baddies, against the evildoers. His use of word, words with either you're with us or you're against us, this binary kind of choice that he's providing the world, um, becomes a unnecessarily destructive version of what maybe another president would also have been facing. So politically, it would have been almost impossible for any president, George W. Bush or anyone else, not to react aggressively against 9-11, politically, internally, because the United States was angry, the United States was hurt, the United States expected its president to strike back at the bad guys, even though that was a very difficult policy to actually define or implement, because who are the bad guys in this case, right? Because the 19 people responsible for 9-11 died and Osama bin Laden was only one person. But there was this need to strike back. Any president faced that. But George W. Bush, in his Western bubble and with these neoconservatives around him, actually became a much more aggressive president than others probably would have been. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And this was incredibly damaging and problematic on the very real world level, as we've analyzed before in, well, in the episode in the Iraq war, but also in the past two episodes. So we're not going to repeat this again, how incredibly damaging the Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan was to the United States on a prestige level, on a military level, on a tax level, on so many levels. However, they were a bunch of other policies that were enacted during this time, um, during this time on the War of Terror, like the Patriot Act, that still have a very real effect on the United States nowadays. Indeed, and again, those were steps that weren't necessarily directly related to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. They were related to the broader umbrella of the War on Terror. And this War on Terror was also an invention by the, the Bush administration which went way beyond we have to get Osama bin Laden or we have to get Al-Qaeda, which would have been a reasonable approach given that Al-Qaeda was responsible. The war on terror was an invention very much based on this almost evangelical uh, belief, evangelical, Huntingtonian, with a little bit of Fukuyama thrown in, uh, belief system where the United States now was on a sacred mission to weed out the terrorists and the bad guys all across the world. And it turned out that those bad guys were defined as Muslim typically, uh, but not exclusively, but typically defined as Muslims, radical Muslims, who were apparently all about to murder us if we didn't murder them first. And as part of that kind of narrative, um, foreign policy and domestic policy became one. So foreign policy was the militarization of 
anywhere, any region where bad guys could be identified. Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where all of a sudden the United States went crazy in terms of militarizing a region that should never have been militarized. But domestically, it was also, well, those bad guys are also here at home. We also have Muslims at home that we have to keep track of. We, there are sleeper cells everywhere. And in order to um, make sure that they won't detonate a nuclear device at time, on Times Square, we need to take action now we need to uh, preempt any such attack by introducing the patriot act by reducing our civil liberties by giving further powers to our security services and all of these measures were much more aggressive and much more um, damaging because of this judeo-christian evangelical mentality that filled the Western bubble even more than it already had been uh, filled. And what now? And this obviously has impact on the future. Um, so you have well, very much actions from the past uh, still influencing us in the present. But when we now look at the future, um, what, is, what are some of the things that we need to take into account when we consider George W. Bush, his actions and how he contributed to the Western bubble. Well, what is very interesting that if you look at the tone in 2008, so the year in which Barack Obama won the elections, um, obviously George W. Bush didn't run anymore because he had already had his two terms. Um, the, there was a very aggressive personal tone against George W. Bush. Uh, there was a lot of anger about the damage that was caused by the wars in, in the Middle East. There was a, a lot of anger... Uh, towards just the overall war on terror and the damage. And a lot of that anger was um, pointed at him personally, at, at, at him being supposedly a bad guy. The first lesson there is that the anger should have been purely towards his policies, because I'm sure that George W. Bush is probably, I don't know, I've never met the man, but he, he comes across as a pretty nice person to have lunch with. It's not about the individual person. It's not about whether someone is at home a good person or an evil person. It's about analyzing critically the policies. And the policies have been incredibly destructive. So the first lesson here is that in 2008, the tone was very much against the man rather than the policies. And there we have to be careful. Um, that then leads me to the second issue when it comes to the today and the future that because we are so prone to care about the individual person and because we are so critical and so angry towards the, the man George W. Bush rather than the president with his policies, we also tend to forget about the lessons learned, certainly after we have an even worse human being in the White House, right? Namely, Donald Trump. So what you see is that the presidency of Donald Trump voted in in 2016, it has overshadowed Bush to into a way that we are no longer thinking badly about the person George W. Bush, which is something we probably should never have done anyway. And as a result, we're also forgetting about the very destructive policies he implemented. Now, by going after uh, Donald Trump's personality and um, sort of making him into this extreme boogeyman, we are whitewashing George W. Bush's presidency. Uh, and yet, if you look at the policies, uh, a very strong case can be made that George W. Bush in his policies was way more destructive than Donald Trump has ever been. 
And the result of that is that we are actually taking into the future a wrong version, a wrong interpretation on hi of history, where we just value precedents according to their personality rather than their actions. We should keep the actions of George W. Bush in our minds. We should understand the enormous damage that they uh, caused and where they came from. And keeping those lessons alive is absolutely fundamental of looking towards the future. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on George W. Bush. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Alder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Well, if you Google quotes by George W. Bush, you're going to get an awful lot of amazing quotes, not from an intellectual perspective, not amazing quotes in terms of insight, but in terms of his personality and his way of thinking. Um, I went with this one. I just want you to know that when we talk about war, we are really talking about peace. Thank you.